Welcome to the Legal One podcast. Legal One is pleased to partner with the Education Law Center to offer this podcast series focused on the ongoing fight for educational equity in the state of New Jersey for all New Jersey children, regardless of race, ethnicity, or income level. This series will examine how far New Jersey has come in the past half century, largely as a result of the groundbreaking Abbott v. Burke litigation, where we are today, and the emerging challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. In this series, listeners will hear directly from legal experts, policymakers, school leaders, and advocates who were personally instrumental in the fight for equity and how they have overcome significant obstacles every step of the way. Each episode features David Chiara, Executive Director of the Education Law Center, interviewing one or more key stakeholders in the fight for equity. We hope that this series will both inform and inspire, and that listeners will take up the call to do their part in this critical and ongoing effort. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we are pleased to have Larry Lussberg, now an attorney at the Gibbons Law Firm in Newark, New Jersey, where his responsibilities include serving as the longtime director of the firm's John J. Gibbons Fellowship in Public Interest and Constitutional Law, which litigates historic cutting-edge civil rights and civil liberties cases. Larry was a key player in the early days of the Abbott v. Burke litigation, and we'll be discussing the historic Abbott II decision in 1990, which held that children in our poorest, largely urban school districts were constitutionally entitled to an education comparable to that provided to children from our most affluent school districts. I want to welcome Larry Lussberg, my good friend and colleague of many years, to this podcast series on the right to education in New Jersey. And Larry's going to help us with the early days of the struggle for educational equity and education justice in New Jersey, and particularly the run-up and the court's ruling, landmark ruling, and the 1990 decision in Abbott versus Burke II, as it's called, Abbott II, which I think it's fair to say, right, Larry, was an earthquake, not just in New Jersey, but around the country when that decision was issued. And and it's great to have Larry here to talk about it. He's a veteran of of this struggle over the many decades and had played has played pivotal roles at various times in moving our right to education forward or making sure that the state obligations to deliver high quality education is fulfilled. So it's terrific to have you here, Larry. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about your early involvement? Well, why don't we start with now? What are you doing now? And uh, if you can, tell us a little bit about how you initially got involved in the Abbott litigation way back in the 80s. Thanks, David. Um, And it's great to be here. Let me say that I'm going to talk about a number of aspects of Abbott and of the work of the Education Law Center. There's no doubt in my mind that that work is not only path-breaking, but truly extraordinary in so many ways. And as great as some of the other things that we've been able to do were, for me, the single thing that I'm proudest of about my association with the Education Law Center was bringing David Chiara there. It was a very desperate time after Marilyn Morehouser, who argued Abbott II, passed away. I did a eulogy at her funeral. Finding someone to take over an organization that is so badly needed is fulfills such an unmet need in this state, even to this day. There really is no place like ELC in terms of representing children in, in urban districts. It just remains the case. And that I could assist in finding a national figure, an inspirational leader for ELC, it was truly, when I think back on my career, one of the things I'm proudest about. 
Your first question was, what am I doing now? Let me answer that in two ways. So I'm a lawyer at a big firm in New Jersey called Gibbons. I came there in 1990 to begin a program called the Gibbons Fellowship in Public Interest and Constitutional Law, which has litigated a lot of the most path-breaking cases in the history of New Jersey law from not only Abbott's, I say Abbott's plural because there was a few of them, but same-sex marriage, we've done abortion cases, we've done gun violence cases, we've done police accountability cases, you name it, we've been involved and it's something that I'm very proud of. We remain at the forefront of important education issues. I've spent a lot of today working on a case called Latino Action Network versus State of New Jersey, which is the case that is challenging a reality of New Jersey education since before Abbott and throughout this entire era, which is that we have among the most segregated schools in the entire United States of America. Our schools are more segregated than Mississippi schools are. And, you know, just to give you a sense of that, I'm not going to go on and on about this, but to give you a sense of it, 75% of Black children in New Jersey attend schools that are 90% or more Black. That is an unbelievable record. And the record extends to Latino students, it extends to white students, all of whom are being denied the right to education in a diverse environment. It's a matter that our state has known about for a long time and has truly chosen to do nothing. And by the way, we'll come back to it because it's part of the Abbott story. I mean, part of the Abbott story has been that the court in Abbott too, and before that in Robinson, chose not to really take on the equal protection slash segregation aspects of, of these issues. It's noted in the decisions, but really those cases turned on school funding. And so to this day, I feel privileged to be at the forefront of arguing education issues, as well as, you know, anything else that I think is important to the state from capital punishment on down. And I've had a great career in working with the LC has been part of that. Part of this podcast, I should say, is, is going to be uh, delving into the courts, the separate strand of the courts, as I call it, separate but complementary strand of court rulings defining the thorough and efficient education as prohibiting racial segregation in the schools and placing upon the commissioner an affirmative responsibility to give kids the opportunity to, to attend more racially diverse schools. So we are going to be delving into that. And the way we've kind of talking about it here on this podcast is, you know, the court has really grappled with two sort of separate sides of the coin of thorough and efficient education. One is to make sure that kids get what they need now in the schools that they're in today. And that really is about Abbott, making sure that even though these districts are segregated, as you described, that those children get the resources and opportunities that they're constitutionally entitled to now. The other side, and you mentioned the Latino Action Network, which we're also case, which we're also going to be talking a little bit about later on, the renewed effort to try to advance the other side of that coin, which is school desegregation, integration, and diversity. So do you want to comment on that? Go ahead. Yeah, Ryan. let me just let me just quickly because you know that the, the separation of those strands, as you've described it, is very very important, and it's something that alarmingly, in the most recent round of briefing in the Latino Action Network case, the state's brief in the case fundamentally argues that because Abbott has worked, and because children are receiving a thorough and efficient education even in segregated school districts, what's the problem? That echoes in really eerie and tragic ways 
the argument of the state of Kansas in Brown versus Board of Education. It is a pure, separate, but equal argument. And I think the state should be ashamed to be making it. And I, I'm, I'm going to file a brief on Tuesday that's going to say that. We actually compared the brief that was filed by Kansas and Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka to the brief that was filed by the state of New Jersey today. And there are really sad similarities. But the truth of the matter is that students are entitled to a thorough and efficient education, as you said, David, today. They're entitled to certain resources today. But they're also entitled, and the Supreme Court says this in the North Halden case, which is I'm sure what you're going to be talking about with your future guests, the Supreme Court says in no uncertain terms that you do not get a thorough and efficient education if that education occurs in a segregated setting. That is the law of this land. And we have a, an administration right now who appears not to respect that jurisprudence. So let's delve into that strand, as you've described it, that requires the state to assure students in segregated districts get what they need today. Not tomorrow, not next year, not five or 10 years from now, but today. And that's really the way the Abbott litigation rolled out and has been decided over these many years. Right. So tell us briefly how you got involved in Abbott early on. Yeah. So, you know, I come from a family of educators. My mom was a first grade teacher and then eventually a principal and an administrator in Paramus. I've always thought and uh, went to college thinking that this is what I wanted to think about, not be an educator, but analyze the importance of education to overcoming inequalities in society. To me, education has always been the answer to a cycle, to the cycles that poverty creates of, of ever-increasing inequality. So the summer after my first year of law school, I spent half of the summer at the then pretty fledgling Education Law Center, working with Marilyn Morehauser and Steve Eisdorfer, who was there at the time, drafting parts of the original Abbott complaint. And my particular responsibility, which I guess in some ways I shouldn't be too proud of because it didn't end up working out so well, was to argue that the case should not be part of the administrative process. That is, that there was no exhaustion of administrative remedies responsibility with regard to this sort of constitutional challenge. And that was really the argument that I kind of crafted, that this was a constitutional question. And traditionally, constitutional questions don't come before agencies, which we believe as a legal system should not be judging the constitutionality of their own actions. Nonetheless, the court and originally in Abbott dismissed the case. The appellate division reversed and said, now my argument, which Marilyn made, was correct. And then the Supreme Court reversed and did send it to the administrative agency for Judge LaFelt to do a lengthy opinion, which I, I know we're going to talk about a little bit. But let, let me just say that from literally June of 1981, I was working on Abbott, and it's always been sort of a part of my legal DNA, something that I've cared about, you know, as much as, you know, you can imagine anybody cares about anything. And it's because of this fundamental belief that education is the solution to inequality in our society. It was a very, David, exciting time. No one really knew how the court would look at the arguments that were being made. It was clearly a pending question after Robinson v. Cahill, and Robinson had simply said that facially the school funding formula in New Jersey was constitutional, but it left as open as could be the question of whether the funding formula was 
unconstitutional as applied. And I should also say Robinson started down the road of making us think that really comparative measures of spending should not be the what we were focused on. And we should be looking at absolutes in terms of educational achievement, dropout rates, test scores, all that sort of thing. There's no mechanism in place then as there is now to measure that sort of stuff. But, but the concern going into Abbott one and you know and, and Abbott two was that the court would reject arguments that were primarily based upon funding. And we were excited to be making those arguments. They were there were others making similar arguments in other states around the country. It was a very rapidly evolving area of law. It was an exciting time. It really does, by the way, remind me of when I was litigating same-sex marriage, which was happening in all the states around the country. And New Jersey, in some ways, was out ahead of others and was in some ways behind others. But it was this revolutionary time in the development of the law. So the complaint in Abbott was filed in 1981. And uh, as you alluded to, after that complaint was filed, it went, it went up to the Supreme Court, worked its way up to the Supreme Court two years later, simply on the question of where should this case be tried? Should it be tried in a court or should it be tried in front of the Commissioner of Education? And the Supreme Court chose the latter, contrary to your strong arguments uh, that it should be in a court. But I want to ask about the complaint itself, and you talk about the as-applied challenge. What was the focus there? You know, Robinson was a kind of statewide challenge to, to the funding system facially, left open the question of whether that funding system was unconstitutional when applied as to particular districts, a, a district or group of districts. How did Marilyn and your team back then decide to frame this up as applied challenge up for the case? Yeah, I remember this so well, and I, it has always informed the way I think about making cases in the law. I mean, it is a boring case, it is an unattractive case, and it is ultimately a failing case to just make the argument, generally speaking, that school districts don't have equal funding. That was never going to work. The way you win cases when you do what I do for a living is you point to specifics. You point to specific districts where you can tell specific stories. You may even point to specific people who are affected in specific ways. Human beings respond to that sort of anecdotal evidence, including even Supreme Courts, in a way that they may not to broad generalizations. And so we knew from the first that we had to focus on particular districts. It's a really interesting thing that happened in Abbott too, because so we did. We focused on you know the 30 Abbott districts, which were primarily, not all, but were primarily poor urban districts that were serving children of color. We didn't use the phrase of color in those days, but but you know that's that's what it was. What's so interesting is is the way the opinion comes out because the Supreme Court goes out of its way ultimately in Abbott two to say, you know, you challenge the statewide system of funding, but you haven't proved that the statewide system is unconstitutional. You've only proved that it's unconstitutional with respect to the urban districts. I think that was a really smart way for them to write it because it made people feel like they were being fair, which they were, um, and that they were taking the state's arguments seriously, which they were. But let me tell you, we viewed that decision when it came out as an enormous victory because our focus always had been on the vast number of children in the poor urban districts. And we had such compelling stories to tell. And those stories show up in the opinion where, you know, the opinion talks about 
how there were beautiful cafeterias in Milburn and in Irvington, kids were eating lunch in boiler rooms or, you know, sprawled in hallways where they talk about how much language training was available in rich suburban districts and how nothing was available in the poor districts. Those sorts of comparisons were the things that were not only compelling to a court, but made Abbott sellable to human beings who would read it, made it compelling to people who are thinking about bringing this litigation in other states. I learned in Abbott and have employed throughout my career this technique of, and, and to call it a technique makes it sound somehow dishonest, but of focusing on real human beings. That's what legal systems need to be about, even if they're also about broader abstract constitutional questions. So let's talk a bit about that. I want to get to the opinion in more detail in a moment, mm -hmm. but before sure. we get there, I wasn't involved in the trial. I didn't show up on the scene until a decade later after, after the case was tried and the Abitude decision was decided, which we're going to talk about. But I, I've always been in awe of the trial of that. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, my understanding is it took nine months to try, that it was tried before administrative, Chief Administrative Law Judge LaFelt, and that the evidence that Marilyn and the team brought in front of LaFelt was this kind of storytelling, if, as you'd call it, you know, painting a picture of what is it like for kids in Newark, Camden, Patterson, Jersey City, uh, Millville, places like that, when they enter school. What, what, what is it like for them? What do they get? What kind of education do they get? What are the teachers, the support staff, all of that, buildings, versus what do kids in suburbs get? You know, when they walk into school, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you know, just to be clear, so when that case got tried, I was a law clerk for a federal judge. I had nothing to do with the trial. I, I have been involved in some subsequent Abbott trials, or and my program has, you know, including working with you, David, but I was not on that trial team. That said, you know, obviously I talk to the trial team all the time and to Marilyn in particular all the time. I mean, I, I, we, it, it's one of those, I think, great ironies that we fought so hard to have this case heard in a court. And Judge LaFelt turned out to be just as great as you could be. Not only his opinion, which is stirring, but the amount of time and attention he gave to it, his understanding from day one of the significance of the issues he was confronting. That wasn't always the case when we had Superior Court judges who, whether as special masters or otherwise, were handling the case. He turned out, to, and by the way, he ended up, of course, being a Superior Court judge later on. But, but I mean, Judge LaFelt was fantastic. And I, I attended a couple of days of trial. And David, you, your description of what was attempted is apt. There was plenty of testimony from boring statistical experts on both sides. And by the way, the funding formula itself, I want to say, took six weeks to explain to the court. I mean, it was a complex formula. I knew it then, but I couldn't write it out for you now. But explaining it and, and so that the court could understand it and ultimately write a, an opinion, which I believe the explanation of the funding formula is about 125 pages. The opinion itself is about six, a little over 600 pages. I mean, it would have been truly painful for the whole trial to be about that. And we've all been in trials like that. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, it was interlaced here with stories from people, from teachers, from administrators, from principals, you know, talking about what life was like in their schools, talking about what it's like to educate somebody in computer science when you have hundreds of students and 12 computers, as was the case in Elizabeth, talking about, by contrast, where in Princeton, there was basically a computer for every kid. I mean, the, you know, the disparities were so stark, and the ability to 
explain how those disparities were reflected in the day-to-day -day life of students was so masterfully done by Marilyn, who you know had that amazing passion and ability to connect with people. That really, that's what made it a special trial. Um, and amazingly, it sort of continued right through the appeal, which doesn't always happen either. So let's take the story a little bit. Let's let's take it up to the Supreme Court, though. But before we got there, Judge LaFelt issued this 600-page decision and ruled that the funding formula was unconstitutional. And then what happened next was appealed to the, the state appealed it to the Supreme Court. Is that right? No, 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 no. The state, no, no. Actually, to the country, the state appealed it to the Commissioner of Education. Oh, that's right. Stop, I but the Commissioner of at the Board of Education and the and the Commissioner of Education who reversed Judge LaFelt and and held that. While there were funding disparities, those funding disparities did not explain the disparate quality of education. The state's defense in this case was that the quality of education really did not turn on money, that it turned on things like parental involvement, quality of teachers, that kind of thing that was not, could not be reduced to numbers and could not be so easily proven. And, and that was ultimately the holding of the commissioner was that as a result, the, that there had been a failure of proof with regard to whether funding inequities caused differences in educational outcome. So when it went to the Supreme Court, we were the appellants because it went straight from, I think the commissioner does it and then the board rubber stamps that, but it went straight from the Board of Education to, to the Supreme Court and it bypassed the appellate division first time around. So, so now it gets up to the Supreme Court with Judge LaFelt's 600-page opinion, finding that the funding formula in the mm -hmm. education is unconstitutional, yeah. not there and efficient. Commissioner reverses, gets up to the Supreme Court, and the court in 1990 issues Abbott too, its review of the trial record and its decision on that. So let's let's dig into that because that's there's there's just this tremendous amount of important findings and holdings and rulings in that. The first one I want to talk about is, um, and we, uh, we're going to talk about this on this podcast, is how the court, as a first step, felt that it needed to more specifically define what a thorough and efficient education means in New Jersey for children. Talk a little bit about that, Larry. What, what, did, they, what did they do on that? So the in some ways, I think it's the single most important part of the decision, David, and it's appropriate that you've started there. It's a really amazing read, and I know because I reread it this morning in preparation for this. Um, and I should also say that I remember I attended the oral argument. The oral argument was on September 25th, 1989. The, the, uh, about nine months later is when the court issued its opinion. The argument lasted an entire day. There's there about 10 amici who argued as well as educationalists. I believe Marilyn argued for a little over two hours. Paul Trachtenberg argued. It, it, was, it was a pretty extraordinary day in, in the history of, of, of the court. I, I couldn't get into the courtroom. There was like an overflow place where I sat and watched it. And um, it was just, it was, it was just one of those, like it was, I'm sure it's the way people felt when they went to watch. Brown versus Board of Education be argued, you just knew that you were, you know, witnessing an historic event. And, and, the, the, and the Supreme Court's decision really reflects that. It, it starts off by saying, we've always said that it's not about money. We've always said it's about quality of education. And we've always understood that at the end of the day, 
that what matters is how good an education a person is getting. And then they define the measure of that in a way that's inevitably comparative. So whether someone is getting a thorough and efficient education turned on the question of whether the student would be, quote, a citizen and a competitor in the labor market, a competitor in the labor market. So now you're measuring the person's education and their ability to compete. And that necessarily engenders a comparison between the between you, the person who's trying to be a competitor in the labor market, and the people with whom you're competing. And so that inevitably draws into, in, into sharp focus the question of where those different people went to school. Because your ability to compete with somebody is not just based upon how good you are, it's based upon who you're competing with and who you're competing with. If they went to Milburn and you went to Irvington, put you at a great disadvantage. And that's ultimately what the court measured. So that definition, one that was rooted in the reality of our society, which is your ability to earn a living, your ability to live a quality life doesn't just depend upon your ambition. It also depends upon and, and, I mean, and of course, there's heroic stories of people who do extraordinary things. But as a general matter, it's your ability to keep up with other people. It's your ability to exceed what they did. And if they're, if and, and you could be the fastest guy in the world, but if you're running around the track and the other person has a 300-yard advantage, they're going to beat you, no matter how slow they are. Um, and that's really, in a lot of ways, what I've always thought this case was about. It was about the head start that kids in rich districts were getting. And inevitably, the fact that no matter how hard they tried, no matter how good the individual teachers were, no matter how good their parents were in terms of monitoring their education, that, that poor kids of color were not going to be able to compete. But of course, and as the court emphasizes over and over, they lived in places where they had terrible disadvantages in terms of their housing, in terms of their food, you know, and, and, and hunger, in terms of um, the instability of families. All these things contributed to the fact that they weren't really even able to run on the same full speed as, as, as the people who had the 300 yard advantages. So to me, the court, and that's, that's my metaphor, but, it, was, but it's, it, it captures the substance of what the court did in defining a thorough and efficient education. It said that, it, that the education matters, but it only matters in the sense that it allows you to compete. And that causes focus, the focus to be on at least some level of equality of educational opportunity. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah I've always you know, been marveled at the court's willingness to take thorough and efficient, which is a phrase that goes back to the late 1800s when the the education article was first put in the New Jersey Constitution. It's kind of an older text that you see in other state constitutions. And define that in contemporary, then contemporary terms, and we're talking about here 1980, 1990, as that educational opportunity in a contemporary setting the court talks about, which as you point out, equips a child to be a citizen, and a competitor in the labor market. And I would want to add the court threw in to your point about competition with between uh, kids in different communities, low income communities and more affluent communities they added, which means that poorer disadvantaged students must be given a chance and able to compete with relatively advantaged students. That's an extraordinary definition of a thorough and efficient education, isn't it Larry? It really is. And, and that's why I've always been attracted to that metaphor. 
even if you had kids who were equally advantaged in the sense of like today that they have good families who are working hard with them and good schools, if you're giving somebody the big head start, um, they're going to win that race. And winning the race is what competing in a capitalist society is all about. You know, we don't guarantee in, in the United States of America equal outcomes. The whole idea is that you're trying to give people equal opportunity. And it was pretty clear that there weren't. I should say that, you know, you're the court does a good job of tracing the history of the Thorough and Efficient Education Clause, and I want to say something about that clause in a second. But, you know, from the outset, they say equality was part of the measure. It was, it was always, it was always, so they were really not stepping out of a long tradition of viewing Thorough and Efficient Education as something that was fundamentally comparative, that fundamentally turned on having equal opportunities. Nonetheless, you know, there was this, you know, they had to grapple and they, and they do a tremendous job of talking about this, of what it means, of, of, what, of what trying to equalize funding would mean. Um, and they were concerned about at least three things. One was that equalizing funding would cost the state more money than it had. It wasn't going to be possible. Reality number two, poor districts couldn't raise the money themselves. And there's, this, there's a lot of discussion in Abbott too about so-called municipal overburden and the fact that poor cities did not have the ability to raise taxes in a way that wealthier municipalities had. But number three, that they weren't looking for the school districts that were doing well to decrease their spending. They didn't want to create a situation where equality meant cutting money from school budgets. It was a matter of raising up the people at the bottom, not depressing people at the top. And so the court tried to come up with a way of articulating that. And honestly, at the end of the day, you can read this opinion and you can read all the technicalities of it, but there's a section here where they talk about the reality in urban districts, as opposed to the reality in the suburban and the wealthier suburban districts. And, you know, let me just to give you an example, and this is one that I mentioned earlier, but just it's just so compelling to me. They talk about, this is just talking about lunch, and lunch is important, right? I mean, you have to have a break in the day. You have to be, have sustenance in order to learn. And they talk about how schools in the richer suburban districts are newer, cleaner, and safer. But listen to this. In an elementary school in Patterson, the children eat lunch in a small area in the boiler room area of the basement. Remedial classes are taught in a former bathroom. In one Irvington school, children attend music classes in a storage room and remedial classes in converted closets. And another school in Irvington, a coal bin was converted into a classroom. So it was that sort of specifics of painting that dramatic picture that has given that opinion, I think it's historical generative power. And let's think about it. I mean, in a, this, this, this state of ours is one which is like, you know, every other state in some ways is divided, but we're more so. I mean, we're a state, as I would talk about segregation before, with a tiny little state with 632, you know, the number 621, whatever it is, school districts, all these different school districts, everyone wants to have their own school district. I mean, I think if we could do it, every single person would be in their own school district. I mean, but, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, this, you know, deep seated feeling of wanting, of wanting home rule. And nonetheless, Abbott, which was prescribing, you know, tax dollars from suburbs to go into poor cities, money from white people to go to educate black people, this sort of thing has been accepted. I mean, over the years, there have been a few efforts to enact constitutional amendments to overrule T&E, but that hasn't happened. And I sometimes think to myself, why is that? 
let's be clear, we haven't always been satisfied. David, you know this better than anybody with what administrations have done in terms of school funding. But the notion that thrown and efficient still survives all of that is, I think, a tribute to what Chief Justice Wilentz wrote in Abbott II. He portrayed it in a way that almost nobody could disagree with. Uh, nobody who has a, who has any human instincts, no matter how selfish you are, and you know now a lot of our, you know, the, what we all believe could never happen has happened in the last few years politically, um, but still to this day we you know that jurisprudence survives and is vibrant, and it and you know we, we got all the way up through Abbott was the last one twenty three or up to twenty three yeah so all, so in twenty three iterations of <laughs> Abbott not only did it never change, but it was reinforced over and over and over. I haven't done this analysis, but I bet if, I'll bet you after Abbott two, 22 of the, of the next 22 opinions <laughs> talked about, it's quoted Abbott two. It has had extraordinary staying power. And that's not just because of the abstract legal principles, it's because of the stories. And those stories are real and they're compelling. Yeah, and so that's such an important point for our listeners to to understand is that that definition, court definition, of thorough and efficient meaning, um, equipping citizens for citizenship and for competition in the labor market, is the defining principle to this day. So anybody that's working in education and public education, or cares about public education, that still is the touchstone of what our education system has to provide. So I think that's just such an important point. We forget about that. And the kind of goal of the system, if you will, has to achieve. I also- And, and one of the reasons, David, let me just say, one of the things about it is that it also elevates all of this to beyond money. The, the, the principle requires you to look at the human costs of disparities and those costs have since that time, I mean, you know, back, let me just tell you, when we were talking about these things in the 1980s, nobody talked about a school to prison pipeline. But, you know, since then, we have something called mass incarceration that we talk about. And we know that some of the disparities in educational opportunities cause that, cause that mass incarceration, cause that, you know, that, that school to prison pipeline. We have come to understand in a way that Abbott foreshadowed that differences in spending, differences in wealth amount to differences in educational outcomes, which amount to differences in societal outcomes. And a lot of the fight today about not only criminal justice reform, but, but also even, you know, as we all turn on the radio, TV, whatever today, you're reading about voting rights. And voting rights is about vindicating those very same interests, making sure that everybody has the right to participate in society equally. I mean, that's really that the whole idea that that equality is what is what it's all about is what's embedded so profoundly in Abbott. Well, and and um, the notion that I think that you read in Valence is not directly. I don't think Valence really talked about it this way, but we're talking about it so much today as public education is under assault in so many states across the country that you know through privatization and vouchers and all of these other things that. Um, that public education stands as a pillar in maintaining and preserving our democracy, uh, maintaining our right to vote and, and the vitality of our civic life. So I think, you know, Wilentz was really, I mean, obviously his definition is even more relevant today, I guess is the point I'm taking when some of our notions of 
very notions of, our, of, what, of what our democracy should be and, and access to voting rights and so forth and so on are under assault. Yeah, and in that regard, I mean, remember the very definition that we talked about before, it was your ability to function not only as a competitor in the marketplace, but as a citizen. What is a citizen? Is someone who meaningfully participates in their political system, in their society. It wasn't just about making money when you get out in the marketplace. It was also about that kind of meaningful participation that in some ways is what's really under attack um, in the voting reform you know, that the right wing is, is pushing today. Yeah, and, and, and Justice Valencia, at one point in the opinion later on, even goes beyond that. I want to pull this out and get your reaction to this. You know, you were talking about the the opinion goes through all of the, I guess, parade of horribles, uh, all the evidence of disparity in resources and course offerings and quality of teachers in buildings and uh, in the urban districts versus the suburban districts that you had basically these two separate school systems existing side by side, sometimes only divided by a boundary line on a piece of paper, right? Where you basically had two amazingly different systems. One, tremendous resource disparities, deficits, inadequacies alongside some of the best public schools in the United States. And in the kind of summary of his, after going through all those disparities of what's available in East Orange versus Millburn, Cherry Hill versus Camden, so forth and so on, he talks about, again, talk comes back to citizenship and competition in the labor market, but goes on to say, it goes beyond far, far more than merely registering to vote, Justice Valence says. He says, it means the ability to participate fully in society. It means the, in the life of one's community, the ability to appreciate music, art, and literature, and the ability to share, I wanna underscore that word, share, all of that with friends. As plaintiffs point out in so many ways and tellingly, if these courses, this education that delivers that is not integral to a third efficient education, why do the richer districts invariably offer that? I should go on to just one other point. And the next, the next uh, later on in that paragraph, Justice Valence commented on the state's defenses that, well, you know, it's okay for these urban districts to provide just basically minimal education, basic skills education, not all of these rich and rigorous courses that allow art, music, science, in Justice Wilentz's words, curricula ties kids to school. You know, it's not just the mathematics and, and English or language arts. It's the, it's, the whole, it's the whole package. And he talks about if absolute equality were the constitutional mandate, here he's talking about basic skills education, and basic skills sufficient to achieve that mandate, there would be nothing, there would be little short of a revolution in the suburban districts when parents learned that basic skills is what their children were entitled to, limited to, and no more. What do you uh, make of that? You know, so I've always thought one of the more compelling parts of Abbott 2 was the discussion of foreign language. And, 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 and here's why I say that. Foreign language to me goes to both, a, there was both there's both a practical aspect to it and a mind, um, a mind growing aspect of it. L let me tell you what I mean. I mean, in a, in a, in, in a world like ours, a global, a, with a global economy, and at this time in history, in the 1980s, there was tremendous 
in particular, there was a, a huge emphasis on Spanish, on the fact that our country was becoming increasingly Spanish speaking. Um, today, um, and I know this because with my own kids, you know, and, and now I have a granddaughter who's, you know, is two years old in, in daycare in Bethesda, Maryland, and is learning Chinese. Um, so there you go. I mean, that's a practical thing to function in our world efficiently, to compete in the marketplace, being able to speak languages, different languages is critical, but it also make you a broader person. It, 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 speaking as a person who has spoken a number of different languages over the years, depending where I was living at different times, you know, when, when you start to dream in another language, you, you actually dream about different things that your own language might not even allow you to dream of. I mean, you, you, you know, you always hear the whole thing about how, you know, Eskimos have, you know, a hundred, however many words for snow, and we, we have one word because we only view it one way. And now with climate change, you don't even view that. But I mean, but the, but the um, you know, the, the, how your ability to think broadly de depends in part on your ability to speak different languages. And look at what the court said. And so the court focuses on that language on that language. Listen, listen I'm going to read just quickly this one paragraph where he describes this. The disparity in foreign language programs is dramatic. Montclair students begin instruction in French or Spanish and Spanish at the preschool level. In Princeton's middle school, fifth grade students must take a half year of French and half year of Spanish. Most sixth graders continue with one of these languages. Many begin a second language in the ninth grade where four year programs in German, Italian, Russian and Latin are offered. French and Spanish are offered on two tracks, one for students who begin instruction in middle school and the other for those who begin in ninth grade. Advanced placement courses available. In contrast, many of the poorer urban schools do not offer upper level foreign language courses at all and only begin instruction in high school. Jersey City starts its foreign language program in the ninth grade. Patterson begins it in the 10th grade. Most Jersey City high schools offer only two languages. Both of Patterson's high schools offer only Spanish, although the two Patterson high schools share one German teacher and one Latin teacher. I mean, it's, it, you, know, the, he, you know, this emphasis on language to me kind of goes to both the competing in the marketplace point and the point that, you, that, that education is supposed to teach you how to think in a broad manner that helps you to use the words used before David share, to help you, it helps you adopt other people's perspectives. It makes you a broader, more expansive thinker. So what was being, what, what poor urban children were being deprived of was not just the ability to compete, but the, the ability to, to reflect, to, you know, to think bigger thoughts. I mean, you know, these are, this is a lot of what education is about and it really goes to the questions you were asking before. That's a great example, and I think there are many others. And you know, whether it's advanced placement courses or teacher quality, and all of these things that these these that are in the opinion, and that sort of led the court to describe, I think, is some of the summary descriptions of the quality of education in the urban districts range from tragically inadequate to uh, woeful to um, to abysmal. I mean, all the words that one could imagine. The court concludes that that the record showed is available when these kids go to school. Yeah. But I, I, I wanted to ask you about funding though, because I, wanted, I don't, I, you know, <laughs> want to move along a little bit and get to the funding issue because yes, it wasn't about funding, but then it was. Um, and I noticed in the opinion, again, it's sort of striking to me because, you know, we've, we've eliminated a lot of the funding disparities because of Abbott over these 
last 30 years. We still have a bit to go, we have ways to go, but by and large, these significant disparities in the amount of money behind students in poor districts and more affluent districts has been eliminated and closed and all of that. Uh, but the gaps in the record that they talked about between the spending on students in rich districts and poor districts that the funding system delivered are extraordinary. I think 40%, almost half. So essentially what the court was, the record showed that the amount of money behind students in the poor districts was upwards of 40% below that what was available to educate kids in more affluent districts. And that was true even when federal aid was considered. I mean, they even built that in so that when federal aid was considered that the, you know, the average for the poor districts was $3,751 a student. And for the rich districts was $4,493 per student. And that was after the um, federal aid, which was supposed to be the equalizer. So, you know, that the, you're 100 percent correct. I mean, the numbers are staggering, um, you know, and, and, and the court goes through them in detail um, in the opinion. And it was also a big part of Judge LaFelt's opinion as well. And doesn't Larry, the court then make the bridge, though? I mean, they make the important leap or connection. It's more not a, leap, a connection that these um, that uh, that given these disparities in the amount of money that's spent on these children, that then leads to, or is a cause of, if you will, these tremendous differences in the quality of the education that you've described, you were describing language arts, but we could go on, these tremendous differences in the quality of education that kids experience and their outcomes. The court went through outcome measures too, like dropout rates and test, score, test scores and things that were available at that time. So. Didn't the court, you know, sort of, although they, they, the money wasn't the issue alone, they were really far ahead in making the connection between what money buys and then the outcomes it delivers. There's no question. And, and, and a, a great deal of the court's opinion, um, even more in the Supreme Court than before Judge LaFelt, was dedicated to showing that I want to call it a correlation, but it wasn't nearly that statistically driven. Um, of showing that money matters. Um, it wasn't that money is completely determinative. I mean, for sure, there are extraordinary stories of people in poor school districts who succeed and of kids in rich districts who fail. Um, I mean, the, the, all of that happens. But what the court was able to show was that the very disparities that we've been talking about, whether it's in language arts, or they talk about gym, or they talk about uh, music, or they talk about um, teacher excellence, or they talk about dropout rates, all of these things are correlated with, 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 not, with, with, with wealth, with the wealth of the district, and therefore with the amount of money that was put into education. Um, and, you know, again, there's never, it's never perfect, but I mean, the, the, the single most significant passage of Abbott II, the one that's quoted over and over and over in all of the subsequent Abbott decisions is this concluding paragraph, which, I mean, I tell you, I get choked up when I read it. And this is what it says. This record proves what all suspect, that if the children of poorest districts went to school today in richer ones, educationally, they would be a lot better off. Everything in this record confirms what we know. They need the advantage much more than the other children. And what everyone knows is that as children, 
The only reason they do not get that advantage is that they were born in a poor district. For while we have underlined the impact of the constitutional deficiency on our state, its impact on these children, sorry, is important. They face through no fault of their own, a life of poverty and isolation that most of us cannot begin to understand or appreciate. You know, it's hard to read those words and not see what exactly they're doing. You know, that what the court is doing there, a unanimous Supreme Court, it's hard to imagine we would even get that today, um, saying that money matters, that, that where you come from matters. And there's embedded in what I just read to you and a big part of Abbott too, is the idea that this wasn't just about equal funding or a substantially equal funding of education. It was also about the fact that the urban districts needed catch-up money, that there needed to be supplemental money because they had more kids in need, whether because of language issues or poverty issues or mental health issues or whatever, that there had to be supplemental funding to help them catch up. That was a big part of the Abbott holding yeah. was the supplemental education funding. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I, that was kind of, I'm glad you raised that because that you talked earlier in the, you know, when we started out that the court and Abbott stayed away from the equal protection area, stayed away from the issue of racial segregation, but they did not shy away from the issue of socioeconomic segregation. In other words, segregation based on poverty. And uh, in the court's opinion, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. They take extra time particularly when they talk about outcomes and the low outcomes, the low academic achievement levels in the urban districts, the dropout rates, you know, the, the, the low test scores, the fact that kids are behind, to talk about the need for additional, pro in other words, the court is really saying that poor kids need actually more than children in more affluent districts. Talk, talk a little bit about the court's handling of that issue. Remember, it's important to remember what the Abbott so-called mandate was. What is it that the court actually ordered in Abbott II? First, it ordered that the funding of education in poor urban districts had to be at the level, the same level as the property-rich districts. That, the, that that funding could not be dependent on, that, on the urban district's ability to raise funding through taxes. So that it had to be guaranteed by the state and and this is the part that you're asking about, that the level of, of funding also had to be adequate to provide for the special education needs of the children in the poorer districts. And there's exhaustive analysis of how the needs of those students going in required greater funding than what the richer districts were providing. And, and, but meanwhile, that disparity continued to exist. So it wasn't merely that there was a disparity between rich districts and poor districts. It was that the poor districts had greater needs to start. And I think that this is incredibly important in terms of what I'm sure you're talking to other people about, but what happens to Abbott after that, which is, you know, there's this extraordinary series of decisions on early childhood education. That early childhood education was an effort to give to poor districts what rich kids were already getting. I mean, my granddaughter is already getting an incredible, you know, education, but, you know, if she was in a poor urban district, would she? Not without a program like the one that the Supreme Court ordered in subsequent Abbott decisions. And likewise, by the way, with regard to facilities, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so, you know, the, the, the crumbling facilities in Abbott districts 
were the subject of later litigation. And that was another area where the court ordered there to be a catch up, not just equal spending today, but make up for unequal spending historically. And, and I think that's what's extraordinary about the decision in some ways. It's it, as, as amazing as it was in terms of ordering equality now, it also took account for historical equality in a way that you don't always see courts uh, willing to do. Yeah, and so let, let's just just flesh that out a little bit more. I, I, you know, it's fascinating. The court, I think, though, in Abbott two, to your point, and we're going to talk about how the court later in subsequent decisions had to get deeply involved in the question of what are the extra or additional program supplemental programs on top of their basic program yep. that are needed in very in um, in um, in high poverty, in these high poverty, poor urban districts. Um, uh, and, they, in this opinion, they, the record, I guess, there's a little bit about pre-K and they talk about a few other things, interventions, but they basically, but that doesn't keep them from making the point that it, a for, the funding formula to be constitutional for these districts, and this is the, this is the, Point here, it is clear to us to achieve the constitutional standard for kids in these districts. The educational offer, off, educational offering must contain elements over and above those found in affluent in the affluent district. If the educational fare fare of kids in poor districts is the same as regular education given to advantaged students, those serious disadvantages will not be addressed. The disadvantages of poverty the courts referring to that they bring to school and the students in the poor districts will simply be not be able to compete. So back to the notion of competition, right? So this, I think in 1990 is a, I described it as an earthquake. This is an earthquake in education practice and policy, not just in, in we take it for granted today that funding formulas fast forward, that a good funding formula to be adequate has to include not only enough money for a strong regular education program for all kids, but additional funds to deal with issues like concentrated poverty, the need to learn English in school, kids with disabilities and so forth. That was a revolutionary concept back then. And, and the court, I, this may be the first decision in the country where the court actually explicitly honed in on that. Yeah, and, and just to pick up on a point they made earlier, I remember when we were putting together this complaint and talking about it before it got filed and discussing whether we should go for that, right? Were we being greedy asking for not only equal funding, but extra funding for the poor kids? And the way it ended up being analyzed was, and I remember people were asking the question, well, isn't that what the federal funding does? Isn't that what the federal funding is supposed to do? And so one of the amazing aspects, David, of Abbott is the way it took that on. And I mentioned this earlier, that it showed that even with the addition of federal funding, that those disparities persisted. And so that fact opened up the possibility of saying that needed to be extra supplemental state aid. And, you know, I know one of the things you wanted to talk about was Abbott 3, which I argued. Abbott 3, one of the reasons that the QEA, which was the next you know, iteration of the school funding formula in New Jersey failed was that it failed on exactly those grounds. That there was that what the court found that there wasn't sufficient funding 
to, you know, what you want to call it, catch up, you know, supplemental funding that had to be to go to the poor districts to make up for the historical disadvantages that they face, to make up for their inability to raise money from their own tax levy, to make up for the fact that they started with, with, a, with a needier student population. Um, Abbott recognized that and, and the Supreme Court in, in evaluating subsequent formulas continued to recognize it and to make sure that the state did that and to not accept the answer that the state is doing all it can, that they're trying as hard as they can. By the way, that's a super interesting part of, of Abbott too. The, the Supreme Court in Abbott too starts off by saying, you know, we're not blaming the state. They're doing the best they can. You know, I mean, we, we, we have dedicated teachers, we have dedicated public servants, everybody's doing the best that they can. But this is a problem of such longstanding and it's so deeply entrenched Definitely. that it's gonna take extraordinary efforts. And that was a theme that persists throughout the many Abbott decisions. It's the theme that gives rise to, let's do more by providing for early childhood education. It's the theme that persists by saying, let's do more by building good schools. And by the way, let me just say, it's the theme that persists today when you at the Education Law Center are litigating the question of, don't we need to do more for those kids in poor districts who, because of COVID, need computers and don't have them, need greater access to technology? This disparity between the rich and the poor in the United States is part of our ongoing heritage and reality. And one of the things that Abbott does that's so amazing is that it simply refuses to accept that. That's what makes it a historic and forever memorable decision. It says, yeah, okay, you know, we live in, in, a, in, a, in a country that has inequalities. We're not accepting that. I mean, think about that. Think about what the court is doing there. Think about how in some ways radical it is, but think about the way in which it was couched in terms of the kind of thing that everybody understands individual stories, individual anecdotes, kids having lunch in boiler rooms, kids having lunch in old coal bins, language arts being taught in hallways, these sorts of things that, that everybody says, you know, there but for the grace of God go I type stuff and, and can sympathize. And, and what, 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 you, what you're left with is an opinion that has survived the ages. I mean, it's for me just incredibly, incredible source of pride that I could be part of that at the beginning and be talking to you about it. Um, you know, these, you know, how many, almost 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. yeah and, and one other, I have to pull, point up one other, um, oh, the debates about education, you know, that we have today are, are reminiscent of, 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 of those that we've been having for decades now. And one of them is and, uh, that the court addressed head on, and I want to get your reaction to this, that I think is really uh, powerful is the notion that you hear to this day in education that, well, schools can't really fix the problem. The problems in, of concentrated poverty or kids living in poor communities or kids living in communities where there's high levels of violence and unemployment and disinvestment and so forth and so on are just too great. And that all they're entitled to is a kind of basic skills. There was a, I was just reading about the lawyer for a, the assembly or the legislature in Pennsylvania, the school. Pennsylvania is actually trying now the constitutionality of their school funding formula, which oh, mirrors what mirrors what um, our formula was back like back in 1990. By the way, the disparities between rich districts and poor districts in Pennsylvania. But a legislator, legislator's lawyer asked one of the experts for the plaintiffs, "Well, you know, isn't it isn't it good enough just to have a kind of McDonald's track?" 
to prepare you for McDonald's. And that's, that's okay, isn't it? Um, the point being is that I want to get to this point, though, where the court really goes into this, it knocks down all the excuses, one of which is it's a question of poverty, not education. And at one point in the decision, they talk about, and this gets into, they're going to order the money anyway, because they were under criticism that just throwing money at these urban school districts wasn't going to solve the problem. They recognize that money alone is insufficient at all. They say, we realize our remedy here may fail to achieve the constitutional object that no amount of money may be able to erase the impact of socioeconomic factors that define and cause these pupils' disadvantages. We realize that perhaps nothing short of substantial social and economic change affecting housing, employment, childcare, taxation, welfare will make the difference for these students and that that kind of change is far beyond the power and responsibility of school districts. We have concluded, however, that, the, that even if not a cure, money will help and these students are constitutionally entitled to that help. We kind of, it's, look, I mean, then chills up my spine. That, well, that, but, and, but think of the irony of the country argument. The country argument is the situation is so bad we should do nothing. I mean, you have two choices in all of life. We all have choices. We can do nothing or we can do something. And, and in some ways, what the Supreme Court was deciding between was those two things. And they didn't buy the idea that the answer should be we should do nothing because it might not work. And it didn't buy the idea that we should do nothing because the problems are so deeply entrenched and go beyond education. To go back to some other issues that we've discussed today, you know, racism is so deeply entrenched in American society. And so you could say that because racism is so deeply entrenched, we should do nothing. But I and many others, you know, choose to take the exact opposite approach, that because it's so deeply entrenched, we have to do more to uproot it. We have to try harder in, to deal with it in all of its manifestations, whether those are part of the criminal justice system or, as here, part of the education system. Because these problems that are discussed in Abbott and Abbott talks about them are related to race, just as they're related to poverty. But the fact that poverty will exist can't possibly be an excuse to do nothing about it. The fact that racism will exist can't possibly be the reason to say, so we shouldn't provide for additional funding to try to make things better. Government has the responsibility, in my view, to try to make things better. And what Abbott was about was a question about whether government was doing enough. And the court correctly answered the question. It was no. And so it, it ordered government to do more. And David, you know, from having done this for as many years as you have, that, and as you said a few minutes ago, that, that, that that's been successful. I mean, it's been successful, that we do have greater equality. We do have higher quality. You know, the stories that are told in Abbott too, you are not gonna see those stories really today. You're just not. I mean, those disparities have, is it perfect? No, by no means. I don't mean to say that. And it's always going to crop up in new iterations. Like I said before, with regard to the computers at the time of COVID, there's always going to be new forms of inequality. There's always going to be new challenges to confront. But by trying, we accomplished a lot. I mean, you talk to those kids who got an early childhood education as a result of Abbott and who are successes now. It's real. And, the, and isn't the key, just take it a little step further, it's an amazing point, and just take it one little step further, and maybe you were implying this in what you said. The court was not only willing to, to not accept it, 
and to basically tell the government, state government, they had to deal with this. But they were also made it clear that this was part of the student's constitutional entitlement. And I come to a sentence just beyond what I read where the, where the court says, if the claim that these students cannot make it, the constitutional answer is give them a chance. The Constitution does not tell them that since more money will not help, we will give them less. That because their needs cannot be fully met, they will not be met at all. It does not tell them that they will get the minimum because that all is all they will benefit from. So the court is really going that next step and essentially making these requirements of adequate funding, of money for supplemental programs, for all of these things, not just something that the government should do because it's as a policy matter, but making it part of the package of kids' constitutional rights. And that's so important because, because as we know from the Abbott story, we've been able to use that to hold the state continually accountable to deliver, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the kind of, to me, that's a side of the, the, the heft that the court is sort of adding to all of this. Yeah, and, and, and it's also, I think, now I'm gonna say something that's pretty lawyerly, I mean, the Throne Efficient Education Clause is a pretty extraordinary constitutional provision. It's a constitutional provision that's unlike most constitutional provisions. You know, most of what constitutions are is they tell the government what it can't do to you. It can't illegally search you. It can't, you know, coerce a confession, can't violate your right to due process. It can't do this. It can't do that. The Throne Efficient Education Clause is about what it has to do. It imposes an affirmative obligation. It makes it a truly extraordinary constitutional provision. And by the way, there isn't one in our federal constitution, which really is largely about, I mean, this, we're a country that grew up in opposition to government. It was all about taxation without representation. We wanted to get away from the King of England and all that thing. So we wrote a constitution that protects us from our government, but it doesn't require our government to do very much, if anything. The Throne Efficient Education Clause is one that requires the government to do something to provide something for its citizens. And that's what makes it such an exceptional provision. It also is, by the way, what makes it such a controversial provision because it pits the courts against the legislatures. I mean, the legislature, you're ordering us to do it for that's for us to decide. But no, under the constitution, you have to do it. Whenever you have an affirmative constitutional provision, and I know this from other states, there's always gonna be conflict with legislatures which, thinks, which always think it's up to them. But what this court says is, no, it's not up to you. You have an obligation to do affirmative things. And it makes the t and &E Clause an amazing provision. And it makes our constitution, which has one, and almost all states have them, pretty extraordinary in that regard. And by the way, it also points up you know, some of the deficiencies of our federal system, which continues to be rooted in you know, this sort of frontier mentality. I think you raise an excellent point, which is that, to my knowledge, the only affirmative service, if you will, that governments, state or federal, are constitutionally obligated to provide its citizens is public education in state constitutions. There's no requirement even in our constitution for transportation or for jails or for whatever, you know, police or fire. The only affirmative, I believe, I could be wrong, but the only affirmative responsibility that's placed on government in the United States, and in this case, it's state governments through state constitutions, as you correctly point out, not the federal government under the federal constitution, is the responsibility to maintain and support a system of free public schools open to all resident children. 
and maybe maybe military too at the federal level. Okay, I might I might be missing that one. You're right. Okay, and and then some things have been converted into affirmative by our our U.S. Supreme Court, like guns. But we won't go there. Um, I want to sort of wrap up, Larry, with a couple questions about the relief in Abbott two. So the court ordered in Abbott two two things. It ordered a funding. Uh, basically found the funding system, New Jersey's funding system, unconstitutional as applied, as you correctly point out earlier, only to the 31, what became 31, at that time it was 29, and then a couple were added, 31 poor urban districts. And it ordered the state to do a new funding formula, provide funding for those districts. Two, there were two elements to that. One was substantial equivalence in basic foundational funding in the poor districts that was equivalent to the average spent in the rich districts. That was number one. That was called parity, as we called it. And then the second one was funding for supplemental programs. The court didn't say anything about facilities, even though one of the disparities in resources it spent a lot of time talking about in the opinion was the lousy condition of these buildings in, in the poor districts. What about that? Yeah. So what the court specifically said is that while it had sufficient evidence before it in order to find that the disparities with regard to school structures and you know all, all the buildings existed a sufficient record had not been made to help it determine what the relief ought to be and so it set that aside for another day i've always thought that it was another stroke of genius by chief justice Wilentz. i mean he he was already proposing something that was going to cost new jersey taxpayer taxpayers billions of dollars at a time when dollars with a b really was a lot of money and if he had been if he had gone to construction right then and there it really could have kind of broken the bank and he wasn't going to do that what he also did and what the court also did was as it had done in robinson in the first instance leave it up to the legislature we do have an elected we do have elected representatives and he he wanted to to lay down the law as it were but he also wanted to give the elected branches of government an opportunity to respond and so by pointing up the problem but then leaving it to the legislature he both fostered in a very good way the democratic process and at the same time made clear that the court would not stand by forever if that democratic process failed to function and that has been the tradition of our supreme court i was had a got a great decision in a case where the court struck down the mandatory minimum sentences of 30 years for juvenile offenders it was a gigantic win for me a case i've worked on for nine years and that came about because when the court had earlier expressed concern about the issue it gave the legislature three or four years to do something about it the legislature failed to act and so the supreme court had to step in and and do what some would call legislating this court will do that will only do it when it has to and it ultimately had to here, including with facilities, because you know the state didn't react the way it should have. But at the time, what it said was that it didn't have a sufficient record to really dictate what the remedial steps needed to be. And I think that that was probably correct. And you, um, so you already alluded to the fact that on the things that it did order, which was adequate basic funding, foundational funding, equal to what's spent in the suburbs, right. and funding for extra programs, a formula was, I think it was adopted right around the time the decision came down by Governor Florio, Jim Florio was governor, called the Quality Education Act, the QEA, and you and the team at Maryland, and you were involved, you got back involved at, uh, in this, took a look at that formula, and 
what decided it didn't it didn't meet that the requirements that the court had laid out and went back to the court talk a little bit about that give us a little of that history yeah so i remember i don't have as good a grasp on the details as i did when i argued it in the supreme court on may 24th 1994 but by the way it was, it was an interesting thing i mentioned earlier that abbott 2 was argued in september and decided in june abbott 3 was argued in may which is typically after the court's term ends, it was decided less than two months later. And there's a reason for that, because it was very clearly an inadequate response to, to Abbott II. I mean, QEA wasn't going to do the trick. It wasn't going to do the trick with regard to supplemental funding. One of the big holdings of Abbott, of Abbott II was that Ultimately, the responsibility for education in the state of New Jersey lies with the state of New Jersey. We have all these towns, we have all these districts, but the state bears ultimate responsibility. And the fundamental holding of QEA was that the state was not fulfilling that responsibility, that too much was being left in the hands of the districts, and that was not enough supervision or monitoring by the state of to make sure that funding was was actually going to the right places and being used appropriately. And so the QEA, you know, the Abbott decision, the Abbott II decision that we've been talking about is, you know, 60 something pages. Um, the Abbott, uh, or at least 60 something pages in LexisNexis is probably longer than that in the reported decision. Uh, you know, Abbott III is a tiny little 12 page thing. And a lot of it is just saying, we just want to remind you what we said in Abbott II. Lots of times when I look for the good quotes from Abbott II, I look in Abbott III because really they just reiterated and said, you know, we really meant that. And this QEA is, is a half-hearted effort to do it. A lot of what we were debating before the court in Abbott III was the state's argument that, look, we're doing the best we can in difficult economic times, which, by the way, it's always difficult economic times. A hundred percent of the time, since 1990, the state has said, we're doing the best we can in difficult economic times. And what the court held in Abbott III was doing the best you can is not the standard. We have a standard of, of education that requires you to do certain things, to equalize, to have supplemental funding for the state to take responsibility, to not require districts to raise money that they're not capable of raising because of municipal overburden. We meant that when we said it, and QEA doesn't do the trick. And that was fundamentally the story of QEA. But what I argued that day was this issue of, is it sufficient to satisfy the Abbott mandate to try as hard as you can? And my argument was, nope. If, you, if trying as hard as you can doesn't do it, you have to try harder than you can. And that was my argument. So in effect, what the court did in Abbott III was said, nice try, but not good enough. Go back to the drawing board. And as I recall, they gave, then gave the court, uh, the state, some time, three years, uh, to equalize the funding between the rich districts and the poor districts and identify the supplemental programs that poor kids need, cost them out, and provide the funding for them. So, Larry, this has been, I'm going to stop right there. I think we've had a tremendous, this has been a fabulous discussion. I've learned so much from you and always do. It's just been a great trip back in time a little bit, but also a reminder of kind of the core principles that came out of the Abitu decision that still govern New Jersey law today, constitutional law today in education, and that have had such a huge impact on um, the delivery of public education across our nation. So I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to be with us. My true, genuine pleasure. I mean, um, I'm very proud of having got an opportunity to work with people like you for all these years. And um, 
And, you know, as I, you know, get on in my career here, um, you start to look back on these things. And this is one that I really look back on with, you know, great pride and, and some wistfulness, you know, um, it was an exciting time. And, but there'll be exciting times ahead. Believe me, there will always be challenges. Well, I should, should just should, should end by, um, by saying that the um, generations of kids in New Jersey owe you a great debt for all the work that you've done on this. So thank you, Larry, for that. And uh, we'll, we'll end it there. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about the Education Law Center, their wide-ranging work to protect the rights of children, and New Jersey's history of school funding litigation, please visit ELC's website at www.edlawcenter.org. For more information about Legal One, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org/legalonenj.